I'm Wayne Turner, and welcome to the daily podcast of Bible Track. I've developed Bible Track to be both a commentary and a daily Bible reading schedule. These podcasts cover the text and commentary, which may be found at www.bibletrack.org. So, for those who have a busy schedule but do have time to listen to the Bible being read, this podcast is for you. At the end of one year, you will have gone completely through the Bible. Today we're reading Leviticus chapters 24 and 25. This is the New King James Version of the podcast. The King James Version is also available. We see the bread being eaten by the priest in Leviticus chapter 24, verses 1 through 9. This is the bread in the tabernacle. Verse 1. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Command the children of Israel that they bring to you pure oil of pressed olives for the light to make the lamps burn continually outside the veil of the testimony in the tabernacle of meeting. Aaron shall be in charge of it from evening until morning before the Lord continually. It shall be a statute forever in your generations. He shall be in charge of the lamps on the pure gold lampstand before the Lord continually. And you shall take fine flour and bake twelve cakes with it, Two-tenths of an ephah shall be in each cake. You shall set them in two rows, six in a row, on the pure gold table before the Lord. And you shall put frankincense on each row, that it may be on the bread for memorial, an offering made by fire to the Lord. Every Sabbath he shall set it in order before the Lord continually, being taken from the children of Israel by an everlasting covenant. And it shall be for Aaron and his sons, and they shall eat it in a holy place, For it is most holy to him from the offerings of the Lord made by fire, by a perpetual statute. Well, there in the holy place were three sacred objects, the altar of incense, the lamp, and the table of showbread. The priest had responsibilities to keep the lamp burning by renewing the supply of olive oil. The specifications for the oil for the lampstand are first seen in Exodus chapter 27, verses 20 and 21. The table had to be restocked with bread once each week, 12 loaves. So what do we do with the week-old bread? Well, the answer is that they eat it right there in the holy place before they leave. The bread goes in, but the bread doesn't come out. Well, good news for the priests, though. The text doesn't strictly say that they had to wait until the week was over before they ate the bread. It may be that they ate it a little at a time after the Sabbath was passed. The table of showbread was specified, by the way, in Exodus chapter 25, verses 23 through 30. Incidentally, this is the table from which David and his men feasted when they were on the lamb in 1 Samuel chapter 21, with the permission of the high priest Ahimelech. Then, beginning in verse 10, we have a sobering story about cursing. Verse 10. Now the son of an Israelite woman, whose father was an Egyptian, went out among the children of Israel, And this Israelite woman's son and a man of Israel fought each other in the camp. And the Israelite woman's son blasphemed the name of the Lord and cursed. And so they brought him to Moses. His mother's name was Shelomith, the daughter of Debri, of the tribe of Dan. Then they put him in custody that the mind of the Lord might be shown to them. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Take outside the camp him who has cursed, then let all who heard him lay their hands on his head, and let all the congregation stone him. Then you shall speak to the children of Israel, saying, Whoever curses his God shall bear his sin, and whoever blasphemes the name of the Lord shall surely be put to death. 
All the congregation shall certainly stone him, the stranger as well as him who is born in the land. When he blasphemes the name of the Lord, he shall be put to death. Whoever kills any man shall surely be put to death. Whoever kills an animal shall make it good, animal for animal. If a man causes disfigurement of his neighbor, as he has done, so it shall be done to him. Fracture for fracture, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, as he has caused disfigurement of a man, so shall it be done to him. And whoever kills an animal shall restore it, but whoever kills a man shall be put to death. You shall have the same law for the stranger and for one from your own country, for I am the Lord your God. Then Moses spoke to the children of Israel, and they took outside the camp him who had cursed and stoned him with stones. So the children of Israel did as the Lord commanded Moses. Well, in this passage, we see a man with a Hebrew mother, but an Egyptian father, and this man blasphemed the name of the Lord and cursed, it says. Okay, but that's just words, right? I mean, how severe can a punishment be for just uttering words? Well, they did what God told them to do in verse 14, and that was death by stoning. It's notable in this chapter that we are given a narrative, which is unusual for the book of Leviticus, a narrative which includes names and circumstances. While the name of the offender is not given, his mother's name, Shelemeth, it's given along with her father's name, Debri, and their tribe affiliation, or the mother's tribe affiliation, Dan. So why so much detail when the names of these individuals have really no context outside of this passage? Well, the detail gives the decree clout. We're not told that the man's Egyptian father was still living at the time. We are left with the impression that the half-Egyptian son may not have been proud to be among the Hebrews. However, the precedent was clearly set at this point in time. Whether you love Jehovah or not, as a foreigner among the Jews, you may not blaspheme the name of the God of the Hebrews. Those four Hebrew letters for Jehovah... Uh, transliterated into English, or Y-H-W-H. That name is commonly referred to by Jews as the Tetragamation. It must not be spoken except with the utmost reverence. As a result, observant Jews through the ages, and even today, will not even utter the Tetragamation, except in prayer. When speaking of Yahweh, Y-H-W-H, usually we hear it pronounced Jehovah, they commonly refer to him with the substitute word Adonai. In our English Bibles, the tetragrammation, Y-H-W-H, is translated in all capital letters, L-O-R-D, while Adonai is translated capital L, then small O-R-D, with only the L capitalized. In conversation, observant Jews substitute Adonai for Yahweh. Because observant Jews for hundreds of years have refrained from speaking the name YHWH, the exact pronunciation of God's name was lost. That's the reason some say Jehovah and some say Yahweh. Since vowels were not part of Hebrew spelling originally, either pronunciation could have been the way it was spoken. We aren't told exactly what the half-Egyptian said, but in light of his death sentence, you can see how that from this point forward it was just deemed best, not to say the name of the Lord at all. Incidentally, you'll notice that today in English writings, observant Jews refrain from writing the word God when referring to Yahweh. If you'll notice in their Jewish writings, they substitute G hyphen D instead. 
We also find in this chapter some laws concerning payback. These laws are restated here as a principle that all those who abide with the Hebrews, Jewish or not, are bound by Mosaic law. Abide with the Jews, keep their laws, including these laws. It says in verse 17, Whoever kills any man shall surely be put to death. If you want more information on capital punishment for murder, then look at the commentary on Numbers chapter 35, verses 9 through 34. Then it says in verse 19, If a man causes disfigurement of his neighbor, as he has done, so shall it be done to him. And then it says in verse 21, And whoever kills an animal shall restore it. Now verse 22 says that the Hebrew and stranger will be treated just alike, based upon the same laws unless otherwise specified. If you want uh, an exception, then we're going to see that in a few moments when we get down to Leviticus chapter 25. Chapter 24 concludes in verse 23 with the execution of the half-Egyptian blasphemer. Now, in Leviticus chapter 25, we begin with the sabbatical year, verse 1. And the Lord spoke to Moses on Mount Sinai, saying, Speak to the children of Israel and say to them, When you come into the land which I give you, then the land shall keep a Sabbath to the Lord. Six years you shall sow your field, and six years you shall prune your vineyard and gather its fruit. But in the seventh year there shall be a Sabbath of solemn rest for the land, a Sabbath to the Lord. You shall neither sow your field nor prune your vineyard. What grows of its own accord of your harvest you shall not reap, nor gather the grapes of your untended vine, for it is a year of rest for the land. And the Sabbath produce of the land shall be food for you, for you, your male and female servants, your hired man and the stranger who dwells with you. For your livestock and the beasts that are in your land, all its produce shall be for food. So every seventh year, the land of Israel was to remain uncultivated. We also see this in Exodus chapter 23. Now we see in Leviticus chapter 26, which is not today's reading, but tomorrow, that God regarded this rest of the land to be quite important. Whatever grew of itself during that year was not for the owner of the land, but for the poor, the stranger, and the roaming animals. And then some great news for Hebrew debtors. All debts, except those of foreigners, were to be forgiven. And that's also found in Deuteronomy chapter 15. However, there does not seem to be the regular observance of this year in biblical history. It appears to have been much neglected. As a matter of fact, in Second Chronicles chapter 36, verses 20 and 21, we see the judgment of God in the Babylonian exile linked to this neglect. Those verses tie the neglect of the sabbatical year to the first Babylonian exile in 605 B.C. That's the one that included Daniel. Now, Jeremiah prophesies 70 years of exile to make up for the missed sabbatical years. Seven times 70 is equal to 490 years. First in Jeremiah chapter 25, we see that and confirmed again in Jeremiah chapter 29. Therefore, it would appear that Israel was being held accountable for missing 490 years of not observing the sabbatical year after they arrive in Canaan. However, based upon the math in Jeremiah's prophecy, one might deduct that they did keep the Sabbath years for 300 or so of those years, somewhere between the time they moved into Canaan in 1400 B.C. or so, and their first deportation in 605 B.C. And then we have the year of Jubilee, twice a century. 
We take up our reading now in Leviticus chapter 25, verse 8. And you shall count seven Sabbaths of years for yourself, seven times seven years, and the time of the seven Sabbaths of years shall be to you forty-nine years. Then you shall cause the trumpet of the jubilee to sound on the tenth day of the seventh month. On the day of atonement you shall make the trumpet to sound throughout all your land. And you shall consecrate the fiftieth year and proclaim liberty throughout all the land to all its inhabitants. It shall be a jubilee for you, and each of you shall return to his possession, and each of you shall return to his family. That fiftieth year shall be a jubilee to you. In it you shall neither sow nor reap what grows of its own accord, nor gather the grapes of your untended vine, for it is the jubilee. It shall be holy to you. You shall eat its produce from the field. In this year of jubilee each of you shall return to his possession." And if you sell anything to your neighbor or buy from your neighbor's hand, you shall not oppress one another. According to the number of years after the jubilee, you shall buy from your neighbor, and according to the number of years of crops, he shall sell to you. According to the multitude of years, you shall increase its price, and according to the fewer number of years, you shall diminish its price. For he sells to you according to the number of the years of the crops." Therefore you shall not oppress one another, but you shall fear your God, for I am the Lord your God. So you shall observe my statutes and keep my judgments and perform them, and you will dwell in the land in safety. Then the land will yield its fruit, and you will eat your fill and dwell there in safety. And if you say, What shall we eat in the seventh year, since we shall not sow nor gather in our produce? Then I will command my blessing on you in the sixth year, and it will bring forth produce enough for three years. And you shall sow in the eighth year, and eat old produce until the ninth year, until its produce comes in. You shall eat of the old harvest. The land shall not be sowed permanently, for the land is mine, for you are strangers and sojourners with me. And in all the land of your possession you shall grant redemption of the land." If one of your brethren becomes poor and has sold some of his possession, and if his redeeming relative comes to redeem it, then he may redeem what his brother sold. Or if the man has no one to redeem it, but he himself becomes able to redeem it, then let him count the years since its sale and restore the remainder to the man to whom he sold it, that he may return to his possession." But if he is not able to have it restored to himself, then what was sold shall remain in the hand of him who bought it until the year of Jubilee. And in the Jubilee it shall be released, and he shall return to his possession. If a man sells a house in a walled city, then he may redeem it within a whole year after it is sold. Within a full year he may redeem it. But if it is not redeemed within the space of a full year, then the house and the walled city shall belong permanently to him who bought it throughout his generations. It shall not be released in the Jubilee. However, the houses of villages which have no wall around them shall be counted as the fields of the country. They may be redeemed, and they shall be released in the Jubilee. Nevertheless, the cities of the Levites and the houses in the cities of their possession, the Levites may redeem at any time. And if a man purchases a house from the Levites, then the house that was sold in the city of his possession shall be released in the Jubilee. For the houses in the cities of the Levites are their possession among the children of Israel. But the field of the common land of their cities may not be sold, for it is their perpetual possession. If one of your brethren becomes poor and falls into poverty among you, 
then you shall help him, like a stranger or a sojourner, that he may live with you. Take no usury or interest from him, but fear your God that your brother may live with you. You shall not lend him your money for usury, nor lend him your food at a profit. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt to give you the land of Canaan and to be your God. And if one of your brethren who dwells by you becomes poor and sells himself to you, you shall not compel him to serve as a slave. As a hired servant and a sojourner, he shall be with you and shall serve you until the year of Jubilee. And then he shall depart from you, he and his children with him, and shall return to his own family. He shall return to the possession of his fathers. For they are my servants whom I brought out of the land of Egypt. They shall not be sold as slaves. You shall not rule over him with rigor, but you shall fear your God. And as for your male and female slaves whom you have from the nations that are around you, from them you may buy male and female slaves. Moreover, you may buy the children of the strangers who dwell among you and their families who are with you, which they beget in your land, and they shall become your property. And you may take them as an inheritance for your children after you to inherit them as a possession. They shall be your permanent slaves. But regarding your brethren, the children of Israel, you shall not rule over one another with rigor. Now if a sojourner or stranger close to you becomes rich, and one of your brethren who dwells by him becomes poor, and sells himself to the stranger or sojourner close to you, or to a member of the stranger's family, after he is sold he may be redeemed again. One of his brothers may redeem him. Or his uncle or his uncle's son may redeem him. Or anyone who is near of kin to him and his family may redeem him. Or if he is able, he may redeem himself. Thus he shall reckon with him who bought him. The price of his release shall be according to the number of years from the year that he was sold to him until the year of Jubilee. It shall be according to the time of a hired servant for him. If there are still many years remaining, according to them, he shall repay the price of his redemption from the money with which he was bought. And if there remain but a few years until the year of Jubilee, then he shall reckon with him, and according to his years he shall repay him the price of his redemption." He shall be with him as a yearly hired servant, and he shall not rule with rigor over him in your sight. And if he is not redeemed in these years, then he shall be released in the year of Jubilee, he and his children with him. For the children of Israel are servants to me. They are my servants whom I brought out of the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. Well, this uh, Jubilee... It was the name of the great semi-centennial festival of the Hebrews. It lasted for an entire year, just like the sabbatical year, with the same observance with regard to cultivating the land. But there was one more wrinkle to be noted for this jubilee year. All land property during that year reverted to its original owner. Moreover, all who were slaves were set free, and all debts were forgiven. Money lending was not a very lucrative occupation in Israel. According to verse 37, you cannot even charge interest on money loaned to fellow Hebrews. Add to that the forgiveness of debt, and really, what's the point? An interesting implication of the Jubilee year is the value of property leading up to those years. The closer you got, the less the property was worth. Why? 
Well, it reverted back to the original owners of the Canaan occupation. So in reality, in God's economy, you never really bought the property itself. You just bought the use of that property until the 50th year. Really, it was just a a lease of the property. We see in verse 30 that this provision didn't apply to property within a walled city. That property in the year of Jubilee remained with the purchaser after the first year of purchase. Then we see an exemption from the exemption for city property owned by Levites. The Levites were given property within certain cities in Canaan in Joshua chapter 21. And for them, regardless of whether or not it was a walled city, the Levite families got their property returned to them in the Jubilee year. The return of the Jubilee year was to be proclaimed by a blast of trumpets which sounded throughout all the land. There's no record in Scripture of the actual observance of this Jubilee, but the command here is clear. Since the 50th year always followed year 49, which was a sabbatical year, it was a two-year cessation of agricultural activity. That's what was intended, and we see that in verses 20 and 21. As a matter of fact, those verses tell us that the seed sown in the sixth year will give them a yield for three years. Now, had they observed it, and maybe they did, maybe they didn't, we don't have any record they did, Uh, Consider the results of this jubilee year. First, it would prevent the accumulation of land on the part of a few people. Secondly, it would render it impossible for anyone to be born to absolute poverty since everyone had his hereditary land. And thirdly, it would do away with Hebrew slavery with the Hebrew slave restored to the land his forefathers inherited. In the interim, Hebrews purchased as slaves were to be treated as hired servants And we see that in verse 40, rather than as a slave. Four Israelites got a fresh start in the year of Jubilee. No farming for a whole year. Wonder what they did with their time for that year. Now, non-Hebrews didn't get their freedom back as slaves in the year of Jubilee. We see that in verses 45 and 46. However, Hebrews sold into the servitude of non-Hebrews could be redeemed at any time, and did automatically get their freedom at the year of Jubilee. We see in these verses that the year of Jubilee was to be considered in the purchase of a slave, being fully aware that Hebrew slaves would be released in the year of Jubilee. Laws regarding slaves are found in Exodus chapter 21, verses 2 through 11. Incidentally, there you'll find that only non-Hebrew slaves could ever become bond slaves or bond servants. Moreover, note the stipulation of verse 44 here that these non-Hebrew slaves were comprised of non-Canaanites. And that's because of the specifications that we see in verse 44 when it says, from the nations that are around you. In other words, not the Canaanites themselves. God's intentions were that the Canaanites would be driven from the land, not brought in and enslaved. Now, one more point of interest regarding these Levitical laws. Prior to the year of Jubilee, a near kinsman could buy back property that had been sold by a poor Hebrew, according to verses 25 through 28. This is the law which underlies the whole story of Ruth and Boaz. As it turns out, Boaz was the near kinsman of Naomi, Ruth's mother-in-law. And if you're interested in that story, then we'll look at the notes and the reading on the book of Ruth. This concludes our podcast for today. I'm Wayne Turner, and if you'd like to read along with our commentary online, go to www.bibletrack.org. Thank you for listening in today. 
The background music for these podcasts is an original composition written by the music director of Faith Bible Church, Paul Walker.